You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Would you go to Matthew chapter 13? That's where we're going to be this morning. As you turn in there, I want to draw your attention to the fact uh, that the Dallas Cowboys are undefeated. And so that's big news. And not only um, are the Dallas Cowboys undefeated, but the Patriots are defeated. And uh, so really, I mean, you know, we're talking about the kingdom coming and uh, the, the kingdom of heaven. So it's, it's a great uh, morning to talk about that on a day. So today, though, 325, if you're not a Cowboys fan, there's still hope. There, you can still the light, come into the light at 325 today. You can root for them against the Denver Broncos, all right? So 325, that means we've got a lot of time between now and then. So uh, settle in. Matthew 13, that's what we're going to do. Um, here's the thing. So Matthew chapter 13, what is going on, uh, we saw last week, is that Jesus, when we open up Matthew chapter 13, we see that there is a uh, kind of a different tone a different uh, movement in Matthew's gospel. So Jesus has been uh, walking around the countryside of Israel with his disciples, and they have been uh, teaching. Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then in in chapters uh, 10 and 11 and 12, you see that this teaching of Jesus where the crowds have been following, where they've been clamoring after him, the crowds are beginning to dwindle, and the hostility towards Jesus, the, um, the, those opponents that are rising against Jesus, that's, that begins to rise. That begins to come more to the fore. And so Jesus has very real opposition when you open up to Matthew chapter 13. And so what he's doing is he is now going to turn and to begin teaching about the kingdom because the hearers need their expectations to be calibrated to what Jesus is talking about. See, in the first century, what was going on is that everybody was expecting the kingdom to come all at once. I mean, with one big bang, so you know, the Messiah would show up, the king would show up, he'd wield a sword, and with a sweep of a sword, you know, he would right all the wrongs, particularly the wrongs the way I see them. You know, he'd fix a political system, he would, he would upend the, the privileged status, what was unfair would be made fair. This is what all of the first century was expecting, and they, and they, were, you know, they expected this political military overthrow, and they expected it to happen immediately. And many people had come on the scene and promised that. Many people had come and claimed, hey, I'm the Messiah, uh, I'm the one, the, the kingdom's going to come through me. And yet every single one of those messiahs, every single one of those you know, would-be rebellions or revolutions against the Roman Empire gets thwarted. They're short-lived. Because what they find out is that the world system is too powerful and that it's too entrenched and it's too mighty. So every one of them gets stamped down. But Jesus comes along and there's something very different about him. Because Jesus comes along and he demonstrates that he has a power like a power that they have never seen. And he has a teaching that is amazing. I mean, he he, he teaches and and the crowds are amazed. 
And not only that, is His power and His teaching, but He demonstrates that He has authority, and He even has authority over the spiritual realm. So His disciples, His hearers, His followers, they're thinking, listen, this must be it. He must be the one. But in Jesus' offer of the kingdom, the kingdom is not coming according to their expectations. His kingdom's not coming like they were envisioning it to come. He, he, he came for something far greater than the relief of the Roman tax system. I mean, he came for something far greater than to overthrow just the smug and the privileged. What Jesus is wanting them to know is that he came to utterly claim the world as his own, to fundamentally change, not merely systems, political systems. He came to ransom souls. He, he didn't come to confront taxes. He came to reclaim the very fabric of His creation. To restore what's broken at its, at its core. So that in the end, in the end of the age, when the kingdom that has come finally is, is consummated, that there's no more sorrow or hatred or, or grief or tears. And, the, and, 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 and in the kingdom that there's no more poverty or loneliness or, or guilt or broken families or sickness or injustice or even death. And what he's finding is that his hearers, they want to settle for so much less than what it is that he is offering because you see in the Bible, the kingdom of God, it's not a realm, it's not a, it's not a place, it's not a government. It's God's rule, it's His authority, His power over every square inch of creation and over every single heart. And ultimately, this is why Jesus will be rejected. It's why He'll end up being crucified. Because His ways are not our ways. And His people, His nation, they didn't want it His way. So they rejected Him. And the disciples here, you get to chapter 13, and you get the sense that the disciples, they're confused. They wonder, what in the world's going on? I mean, if this is the Messiah, He's got all the power, all the authority, all the teaching, all the signs point to this is the Messiah, and yet the kingdom's not coming like we think it's going to come. And not only that, Jesus is being rejected at every turn. If this is real, Jesus, if you're real, if this is real, what's going on? What's the problem here? Everybody should be embracing you. And it seems like everybody's turning away. This is about to be a lonely deal. And so Jesus is going to answer this, these questions about the kingdom, and he's going to do it in Matthew chapter 13 in these parables. So we looked at the first parable last week, and I want to pick up with the second, 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 third, and fourth parables this week, and hear what Jesus has to say. So I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 13, and I'm going to read beginning in verse 24, and hear the words of Jesus to the crowds and then to his disciples as Matthew records them. So as he put another parable before them, so this is the second one, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. 
But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, The enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then Do you want us to go and gather them? I mean, you want us to go gather up all the weeds? He said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. And he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants. It becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Father, we pray this morning that you would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear what your Son Jesus has to say to us today. We ask this the only way we can in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I I mentioned the Cowboys a little bit earlier. I want to tell you a little bit about them because I fear that there might be some here that, well, you're not from Texas and you, you don't understand the significance of the of the cowboys, the, the righteous. And so, uh, to tell you a little bit about them, they, they, were, they were born, the Dallas Cowboys, in 1960. Uh, they were an NFL expansion team. And um, they have, they still hold, the longest uh, streak of winning seasons. They had 20 winning seasons from 1966 to 1985, and during which they only missed the playoffs twice. Clint Murchison is the guy that owned the Cowboys. He, he started the expansion team in 1960, and he hired a man named Tom Landry to be the head coach who decidedly, unmistakably, 
really without controversy, is the greatest coach of all time. Well, the team changed owners in 1984. It was sold to a guy named Bum Bright. He was a banker, and uh, he owned the Cowboys for five years. The savings and loan crashed. He was forced to sell. And on February the 25th of 1989, one of the darkest days in modern history, he was forced to sell the franchise to a guy named Jerry Jones. Well, Jerry Jones' first act as the owner of the Dallas Cowboys is that he calls Tom Landry on the telephone and fires him. And left no shadow of a doubt that the forces of evil had moved in. And then turns and hires a man named Jimmy Johnson. And such the era, the dark ages, began. Well, in 1989, later that fall, so Tom Landry was fired in the spring. In 1989, I'm a freshman at Baylor University. And Tom Landry comes to speak at the chapel at Baylor University. And I don't know if it was the first time that he'd spoken since he had been fired, spoken in public, but it was one of the first times. And so it was still fresh, fresh on everybody's mind, every, still weeping and gnashing of teeth all throughout the, the country and the, and the world. And um, so Tom Landry shows up, and it is packed. I mean, every student is there, and faculty member, and I mean, the, the homeless showed up. Everybody wants to hear Tom Landry, you know, and well, what's this man going to say after being done so wrong? And he stands up, and it was great. The first thing he said is, well, if, if you ever grow up and you get fired, then he begins his talk. Well, Landry was famous for a coaching philosophy, a leadership philosophy that said this, that he was always, when he was coaching, trying to lead men where they do not naturally want to go so that they can get to where they've always dreamed of. That his aim was to lead men to go naturally where they did not want to go, to do naturally what they did not want to do, so that they could end up where they always dreamed of being. And so Landry talks, and I'll never forget, it was very significant, I remember it vividly, and he was saying, it's always been my philosophy, it's always been what I've tried to do with men that I lead and men that I coach, and I find myself at this time in my life, I am not bitter, but I am seeking to trust God to live out that He is taking me where I do not naturally want to go. So that I will find myself where I always dreamed of being. Isn't that great? Landry he loved the Lord. He was a believer. He was on the, one of the boards of Dallas Seminary. And he cared a great deal that, that those who heard him speak after that knew that he was trusting God. Well, in many ways, I think what Jesus is trying to do in these parables, what he's trying to tell the disciples is, listen, the kingdom as you envision it is not what you think it's going to be. But I am leading you. I am leading you in many ways where you do not naturally want to go so that you will end up, so that you will find what it is that you have always dreamed of, what you've longed for, and you've longed for it by virtue of your creation, being created in the image of God, you desire His kingdom. You long for His kingdom. You're not here to settle for anything less than the kingdom of heaven. 
And I'm the king. And you want temporary satisfaction. You want temporary justice. You want temporary fairness. And I am about claiming the world as my own. Beginning with you and your heart. And there will be a day, there will be the end. The end will come. And the kingdom will be revealed for all that it is. Everything you dreamed about and longed for and so much more. And so that's where the parables are leading us. You know, in this first parable of the wheat and the weeds, or the wheat and the tares, maybe your Bible says, there's this call right immediately that Jesus will give them for patience. You know, it's not like you understand. I mean, so there's this sower, and, and then we've learned before, in the parables before, that, hey, listen, Jesus takes a story of everyday life, and he puts it beside a heavenly truth so that he can illustrate from everyday life everything, something we should totally understanding it because we've lived it and puts a heavenly truth right beside it and says the kingdom of heaven is like this so that we're meant to understand. He's bringing it to a place where we can hear what it is that he has to say. And he says, look, this man, he goes out into the field and he sows the good seed and the good seed the wheat and the wheat comes up and yet he has an enemy who, while everybody was asleep, came in and seek to sabotage his soil, seeks to sabotage his crop. And he does it by planting these weeds. These weeds in the Greek are darnels. These darnels are they're, they're indistinguishable from the wheat. They look just like the wheat. They're counterfeit, except you can tell the difference because at some point in the growth, the wheat will begin to, to bear fruit. The wheat will begin to form heads of grain. And the, and the darnels, these weeds, they won't. They never will. They actually are poisonous. They choke out the soil. They look just like the wheat until it comes time for the wheat when the wheat matures and the darnels don't. And they said, well, then we should get in there and we should pull it out. We should pick it up. And he says, no, you let them grow together. There is a call for patience. It will happen. It will be revealed. The kingdom doesn't happen all at once. I am allowing this world, which is my field, to grow in the way. I have planted the good seed. But he wants them to be aware the enemy will seek to sabotage. The enemy will seek to provide a counterfeit. The enemy will seek to poison and choke out the wheat. Well, then he moves from there, and the, he's going to give the interpretation a little bit later as after the crowds leave and it's just the disciples. But from there, he begins to speak to the crowd, and he says, hey, look, the, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, and it's like leaven. There's this contrast between a present reality and an ultimate destiny. And it's meant to give us hope that what we see now, how we see things from our perspective, this present reality does not always define what the ultimate destiny is. And Jesus says, look, there's an ultimate destiny. There is an end. And I'm telling you, the end's coming. And it will be thy will be done. See, the mustard seed in the, was the smallest seed known to the audience there in Israel and in Palestine of the day. It's the smallest seed they, they knew about. So it's like Jesus takes his mustard seed and he puts this little seed right in his hand. And he goes, I, I want you to know the kingdom of heaven is just like this. And the point of the parable is that, is that while the kingdom of heaven may look and may feel very insignificant, very unnoticeable in the beginning, maybe like the beginning of Jesus' ministry or, or like the beginning of the church that starts out with a few fledgling folks hiding in an upper room, 
waiting for the power of the Spirit. While it starts out this, listen, it's going to grow. It's going to expand. And when Jesus returns at the end of the age, it will be revealed as being substantial. And all kinds of people, he says, will have taken shelter in it. All kinds of people will have come and made their nest in this gospel. And the, the time Rome was the center of the world and Jerusalem was just a little footnote. Jesus says that it will happen. See, the storyline of God's working in the world is one that we can take great hope and comfort in. The storyline of God's working in the world throughout history, we can take great hope. Listen, God does not work the way the world works. His power is not like the power the world uses. His grace is patient. I mean, praise, praise God that His grace, in His grace, He's patient. In His purposes, He's unchanging. In His ways, He confounds the wise and upends the proud. His glory is revealed in the works in history, though unnoticed, Seemingly insignificant, unconnected. He uses the poor and the widow and the outcast. God takes what is useless to a world system that elevates power and strength and wealth and status and position. He takes what the world casts off and he claims it as his own, as his prize for the kingdom. In fact, the image of this Mustard seed growing to such a, such a, you know, you grow up to 10 or 20 or 25 feet, you know, and, and, and birds nest in it. It's an image he draws from Ezekiel that says this in Ezekiel 17 Thus says the Lord God, I will make a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar, and I will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. I'm going to take this small insignificant thing. I'm going to plant it on a high and lofty mountain. And on the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree. I make high the low tree. I dry up the green tree and I make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and will do it. Jesus is saying that's the kingdom. I'm going to turn the world upside down. Like a mustard seed. Remember the opening of the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are not the rich and the powerful and the savvy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those that mourn, the meek, those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, theirs. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he goes to the leaven and the flour. Maybe it's to say, look, I know there's men and women here. The kingdom of heaven is like a woman who's hard at work baking bread and there's such a huge amount of flour. That amount of flour would have 
fed a hundred people, a village, a banquet, a feast. And this small little leaven gets worked into it. And it permeates into everything. And Jesus says, this is the point. What looks like it starts small. What looks like it's insignificant. What looks like it doesn't matter will eventually permeate everything. It's unstoppable. Well, he ends the teaching there to the crowds. And it says there in verse 36, if you noticed, it says, Then he left the crowds and he went into the house and the disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And there are times I wish, I mean, I'm telling you, so I'm so glad the disciples asked the question, would you, would you explain this to us? But then I wish they would have asked some follow-up questions too, you know? So, I mean, Jesus said, well, they, well so this is this and that is that. And, and, you know, I'm sure the disciples were like, yeah, we, we totally get that. Um, Peter, why don't you ask him that follow-up question you were wanting to? Peter's like, no, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm about to walk on water and drown. I don't want to do that. But don't you wish there was more sometimes? And at the same time, what Jesus tells us in these parables makes it, makes it very clear in many ways because we, we can relate. For believers in Jesus, for followers of Jesus, whose eyes are open, whose ears are hearing, whose hearts are soft and the seed has gone in, it begins to dawn on us that, you know what, we know that the kingdom of heaven is not like the kingdoms of this world. He leaves the crowd, he goes in, he begins to explain this to the disciples, and the explanation focuses on the end of the age. Specifically, what's going to take place when the reapers come, and they gather the weeds first, and they bind them together, and then they take the wheat, and they put the wheat in the barn. So the end of the world, it's, it's going to be harvested it means the end. It means the judgment. It always does this. Great harvest is the judgment Jesus is talking about. And the good is going to get separated out from the evil and the bad's going to get bundled together. And in 37 and 38, verses 37 and 38, he, he, he identifies these different pieces of the priest. He says, the sower is the son of man. It's the name from Daniel that Daniel gives the Messiah, the one that's to come, the ancient of days. And then he says, the field is the world. Listen, it's, it's, it's not the church, it's the world. And the good seed planted in the world, in the field, is, are the sons of the kingdom. And the, and the weeds that have been planted by the enemy, those are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy, oh yeah, the enemy, by the way, is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels who await my command. See, Jesus is speaking very clearly the ultimate destiny into their present reality. As He's leading them where they will not naturally want to go to get to where their heart longs to be. He's saying, look, the end is coming. And, and there's a few things we can take away from this. One is, it is the tactic of the enemy to sow weeds. 
See, the enemy can't uproot the wheat. He can't come and pluck the wheat out. If you're the wheat and, and, and the seed of, of God's word has been implanted in your heart, there is nothing the enemy can do to unplant that. The best that he can do is to sow counterfeit. The sons of the evil one. Listen, he can sow counterfeit and he may even provide counterfeit blessing. And it's meant, it's meant for discouragement. It's meant to choke out the wheat. It's, it's meant for the good seed, the sons of the kingdom, to look and go, well, well, that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. I'll give you this great example. Um, in Psalm chapter 1, if you were to open the Psalms and you were to hear the invitation of the psalmist. Right here in Psalm chapter 1, listen to what it says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And then there's the same agricultural picture. He's like a tree planted by streams of water and that yields its fruit in its season, and the leaf doesn't wither, and all that he does prospers. And then he goes by contrast. But the wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind's going to drive away. Therefore the wicked, they won't stand in the seat of judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked's going to perish. And you're reading this and you're one of the righteous. You're part of the wheat, man. You're the tree that wants to be planted. And you say, yeah, you know what? The Psalms, that's my kind of book. That's justice. I can't wait. And I got a whole list of people that are need to be driven away by the wind, right? And you think, this is, I, this is good. I, I want to be blessed, and I want to prosper. So you read the Psalms. Well, what's interesting is, is that's the opening of, the, of book one of the Psalms, five books in the Psalms. You go to the opening of book three in the Psalms, Psalm 73, Listen to this present reality. Truly God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart. Truly He is. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And the psalmist here, he's saying, look... I read Psalm 1. I accepted the invitation. I came into this deal. I wanted to be planted by the streams of water. I wanted to prosper. I want to know. Yet, huh, I look, and I'm so discouraged, and I'm, I'm envious. Because the wicked, it's not me that's prospering. It seems the wicked are prospering. And he goes on and on and on to talk about the state of the wicked and it doesn't seem right. And then he says in verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this seemed wearisome to me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. He's saying, God, I forgot. 
I forgot the end. I forgot the present reality can sometimes look and feel vastly different than the ultimate destiny. I forgot that sometimes you lead me in places I don't want to go and experience things I don't want to experience to lead me, to bring me to where my heart longs to be. Because your ways are higher than my ways. And you're good, and you don't want me to settle. You're not any of your sons of the kingdom settle for anything temporary. And so he lets the wheat, and he lets the weeds grow together. And sometimes we look at the weeds, and we think, it doesn't seem right. But it's counterfeit. And Jesus is saying that the ultimate solution comes at the harvest. In fact, that's what the psalmist will say at the very end. He says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You will put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you, but for me it's good to be near God. I've made the Lord my refuge, and I may tell of all your works. When I'm tempted to look over there and say, man, that's blessing, I I should go after that, that that counterfeit. No, I'm going to seek your truth. I'm going to seek your blessing. I'm going to seek the ultimate destiny of the kingdom to come. And see, God's Word is the only hope in the meantime. As the Spirit illuminates God's Word, in Isaiah 55, it becomes a shelter for us to seek the Lord where while He may be found. That's the message. We find also tactic of the enemy to sow weeds, to sow a counterfeit. The ultimate solution will come at the, hard, at the harvest. And what we find is that the smallness of your life, the smallness of my life, may very well be the mustard seed and leaven of God's glory. See, it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to think, well, I must do more. I must, I must be more. And it's, we're tempted to look at the counterfeit blessings and go after them or the counterfeit glories or the counterfeit strategies to make something happen. But we're called to lean into God. The patient leaning in because He's at work in ways we cannot see, but will be powerfully displayed in His time for His glory in His kingdom. And we may find the smallest, most insignificant, lonely, discouraged moment maybe for the very mustard seed or leaven that He seeks to bring maximum glory to Himself as He's ushering in this kingdom. I'll give you one example, and I'll, then we'll wrap this up. But I'm teaching a class to women area on First and Second Samuel. It's actually just one book all together in the Hebrew, in the old Hebrew, Samuel. And it's the story. You know what the story is about? It's about God raising up in the midst of His people a king. The king's name is David. And in fact, all of 1 and 2 Samuel is is committed to telling the story of God choosing his man, the last unlikely son of Jesse, who he's going to raise, anoint, set on a throne, and make an eternal covenant with to say, your descendant, it'll be your descendant, David. 
that will be the king that sits on the throne. And to his kingdom, there will be no end. He's going to raise up this unlikely shepherd. Raise him up. And it is through his line, Jesus will come and be the king we've longed for. But do you know where the story in Samuel starts? I always find this fascinating. If, if I was writing Samuel and I was trying to tell the story of David, I might have started this way. You know, one paragraph that says, hey, look, um, we're Israel. Um, we don't get it right a lot of times. So we chose Saul. And he was a knucklehead. And God took care of him. And then paragraph two would say something like, but then God came and chose his own king, and his name's David. And that, you know, that'd be where I'd start. I'd just go right to it. Just introduce David and go right on and tell all the things that God would do through him. That's not where the story starts. In the story about how God is going to raise up a king, make an eternal covenant with that king, through whom his son Jesus will be a descendant of and reign eternally. Do you know where the story starts? It starts in the most obscure, lonely, discouraged, outcast place in all of Israel. Do you know where it starts? In the heart of a barren woman named Hannah. Hannah's married, you find out in chapter 1. She's married to a guy who's married to another woman also. Her name's Paniah, or Pariah for short. And she has children. But she's not a very good woman. In fact, she's not good at all. What she does is she takes Hannah, she taunts Hannah, she flaunts her children to Hannah and says, Oh, Hannah, I'm so sorry you can't have children. God must not love you. God must not be blessing you. It must be such a shame to be so barren. You must feel really terrible about yourself when you look at how blessed I am. And so Paniah would provoke Hannah year after year after year, it said. And we meet Hannah weeping at an altar, praying to the Lord of hosts, not through a priest, because there are no good priests, this obscure nobody goes straight to the throne of grace. And the story of David the king whom God will make a covenant with, whose descendant will be Jesus, the eternal king, begins in the heart of Hannah. As she prays, God, I trust you. You're good and you're faithful. Please hear me. And he does. She'll have a son. His name will be Samuel. Samuel will be the one who brings the word back to Israel and announces the coming of David. And then so in, 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 in Samuel chapter 2, what she does is she prays. It's this great song. We, we talk about it sometimes on a Mother's Day or something. But she'll say this, 
God, you, you delivered me. It's three parts of her little song. Her first, the first verse goes, God, you delivered me. You heard me. You're strong and you're mighty and you delivered me out of this little thing. I know your salvation. I know your strength. And she says it because verse 2, she says, and of course you did because God, you act according to your character. You raise up the poor. You bring the dead to life. You have the power to do it. This is the way you bring about your kingdom. You act according to your character. Of course, you saved me and brought this deliverance because this is how you act and this is who you are. And the third line, you know what the third line says? And because you saved me here and I know you did because this is how you are and this is how you act and this is your character, you will bring the final great deliverance and salvation at the end of the age. And your kingdom will come. And she announces the strength and the blessing of a king and his kingdom while there is no king yet in Israel. And it's this reminder that every time God, as we pray to Him, and He pulls us up out of the mire, and He pulls us up out of the discouragement and meets us with His presence in the loneliness. Oh, you delivered me here. And you did, of course you did, because this is your character, God. And it is just a foretaste. This mini deliverance is a foretaste to the macro deliverance, the great end that is to come. And then this, this helps me. That this is a foretaste of the great banquet that is to come. Which brings me to the last thing. There is a judgment and it is coming. There will be a harvest. And what he says about the tares is they will be bound up when he commands his angels by his authority who are waiting for his word and for his judgment. And they will pull all of that out of his kingdom, which is his, rightfully his. And they will bind it up for the burning. That's what he says. Judgment will come to all who have rejected Him. But there's a different future for the wheat. They're gathered up and taken into the barn. You know why they can do that? Because the judgment has already come to the wheat. The judgment has already been executed for the wheat. It's not because the wheat's perfect. It's not because the wheat's without sin. It's not because the wheat was, is, is naturally righteous. It's, it's wheat and it's cared for, and it will bear fruit because judgment has already been executed for it because the sower took the judgment of the believer. That judgment's already happened. Jesus hung on a cross and all of your sin and all of my sin was poured out on Him as God's wrath is, 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 is displayed and executed onto Jesus. And so that judgment takes place. And listen, if you're a believer, you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you've trusted Him, the judgment for you has already happened. Jesus took that judgment. And you, you get to go to the barn where there's a banquet and a, and a feast and dancing. Baptists, they won't dance, but that's okay. We'll, we'll dance for them, Right? It'll be a celebration. And everything you longed for 
and hoped for and felt inside that ought to come and hasn't come yet, it will come and it will far outstrip any expectation or hope or desire that you could ever imagine. I am the Lord and I will do it, he says. So we're tempted to look around and go, man, I don't know. I don't know. The grass looks greener over there. Looks like blessings over there. Jesus says, have patience, be aware. And trust that I am bringing something about greater than you can imagine. Lean into that. And every time I meet you when you're lonely and disappointed and pull you up out of the mire, when you know me in those moments, you hang on to that because it's a foretaste of what's coming. And oh man, is it coming. He that has ears, let him hear, Jesus says. If you would, would you bow with me?